welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up in a punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, uh, a longtime friend, first time I've ever had a real conversation with him, Matt Corvette from the band Piss Jeans, also of Ultimate Warriors, also of uh, Gate Crashers, and more. More than that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, podcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham, and you get the message to me. Thank you, Tristan, for everything you do. And uh, you can also find me on Twitter or Instagram, at Damien. This show has a TikTok page, an Instagram page, a uh, YouTube page. Uh, uh, did I say Facebook? Facebook? It's got all those social media sites at Turned Out of Punk on those platforms. <clears throat> if you want to support the show, tell your friends about it. Let them know that you listen to this podcast. And uh, that's the best way to support it. All right. On to today's show. Today on the show, Matt Corvette. And as I said off the top, Matt's someone I've known for like years, years and years. And Brad's been on the show from Piss Jeans uh, and Gay Crashers and Ultimate Warriors. It's very much like a collective thing, the, these bands, as we discussed in this episode. And I've, so I've talked to Brad, but I, I'd never talked to Matt, really. Well, a couple times we've like, you know, little chats here and there. But as I say in the episode, he's someone I would always have described as being my, my buddy. And uh, now, now we really actually... I can say that without feeling like I'm being a little disingenuous when I say that because we had, we have talked now for two straight hours and if you're not if you're not enemies after that then you got to be friends. Piss Jeans are uh, one of the greatest bands that I've gotten to witness in my time making music and this new half divorce record dare I say might be their best record ever which is crazy to say for a band that's like 20 years in. 20 plus years in, but I really mean it. It's coming out on Sub Pop. Well, if you're listening to this when this thing drops, it's, it's out today. But if you're listening to this, you know, weeks or months, years later, go back and check this thing out because this thing is a monster. I'm sure this will be on a lot of people's best of the year lists because it's definitely on mine. Well, that doesn't mean anything. I like a lot of music that other people don't like, but I think this will be an exception. There's some, I don't want to spoil any surprises, but there are some cool surprises on this one. And I think Matt actually gives them away on this episode. So I'm not going to ramble on anymore. And and uh, other than to tell you, check out Piss Jeans. They're going to be playing some shows. Uh, I think they're playing on the West Coast this weekend, if you're listening to this thing when it drops. And if not, check your local listings. And uh, that is it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Matt Corvette. Matt, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure, Damien. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it was weird because we talked just before uh, we started recording that this is a uh, a situation where because we've never really sat down and had the chance to talk, but I do weirdly feel a very strong kinship to your band and and yourself in a way. Like I do feel like we're from the same scene, even though geographically it's so for different. sure. No, I totally feel the same way. Maybe like neither of us have ever broken up. You know, like, and we kind of started around the same time, probably like we're both uh, underground and beloved for like two years. And then like, 
got popular to a level that like disgusted some and brought in new folks. And so I feel like we have similar trajectory in a lot of ways for sure. And I know a bunch of your bandmates. I just never like chatted with you. I don't know. It's a little weird. Yeah. Cause I know Brad a little bit. Brad of course has been on the show. I think twice actually he was on another time too. And um, so I I feel like I know Brad a little bit better. Like it just, for sure. It's one of those weird things where you just don't sit down and talk to someone, but then like I would never, I would describe like I'm like yeah, Matt's my friend, Matt's my friend. Even though we've never really had like a talk like this, right? Until right. now, so no, it's great to do it. Exactly, it's taken a long time to happen. But also, I feel like not just from Brad, but like you know, the Gate Crashers LP calling uh, Gate Crashers are a bunch of motherfuckers. Like there's just so much deep head punk shit to you hmm. guys and your kind of crew going back way, way back when that sure. also really kind of uh i feel a strong kinship to that too so we'll get to all of it but this has got to be started off the way they all start off which is matt how'd you get into punk from the first time you came across it yeah i mean i was always a big uh music kid you know like metal whatever like uh elementary school it was like guns and roses for sure i mean it's still guns and roses for me but um that was like the first band I got into. And then from there, you know, alternative Nirvana, but really I feel like the, you know, kind of a similar trajectory for a lot of people our age, I think. Um, But it all changed for me when I was, it was my 13th birthday and I lived in Northern New Jersey at the time. Um, My dad took me to a Yankees game and we went to tower records beforehand and I don't know, like, I mean, like if you, maybe if you walk into like Amoeba, even you being a lover of music, you get frozen with the choice of a million things. Right. And you like, can't even look because it's just, there's just too much stuff. And that's how I felt at tower. I like, didn't know what I wanted. And I just grabbed two things just from like cover art alone, which felt like a really big risk. Cause I wasn't really, I probably had like a dozen CDs or something, you know, like it really made a difference to get two new ones. And the ones I grabbed were uh, Pennywise's Unknown Road and Lard's The Power of Lard EP. (laughs) And I loved them both, you know? Like, it was just one of those things that... Like, I don't know if you know how familiar you are with Unknown Road in particular, but it starts off with, like, a crackly piano, you know, (laughs) prelude. And I was so scared that I bought like classical music by mistake for like that first 30 seconds. But then it kicked in and I was like, this is, this is amazing, you know? Yeah. And so it was like a solo venture. It was just kind of me in my bedroom, like not knowing what, you know, not being able to piece this together really. Um, But yeah, I just like, was super into it from that point. I didn't know about dead Kennedys, but I knew lard, you know, just cause there was that like crazy worm on the cover. That was just very, uh, stark, you know, eye catching. Very Dune kind of vibe to it too. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and there was no photos of the members of lard, which added to like, what is this? You know, like it was just so the mystery was so alluring to that. Mm-hmm. Like, the lyrics totally went over my head in a lot of ways, but I could tell they were like very forbidden, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I just, I kind of got into that. And then, I mean, it really was just a matter of um, thanks lists, like Pennywise's thanks list, you know, realizing, okay, this is epitaph 
Let me see what else that entails, you know? And this was, gee, probably like, yeah, like 94, but like it must, I don't know when Green Day hit exactly, probably around the same general time. Um, So that, of course, was like a big thing, you know, to figure out Green Day and like look out records maybe. It wasn't long until I moved to Nazareth, Pennsylvania and met Brad and Randy and a bunch of like who are my bandmates today and a bunch of other like really close friends that I'm still super tight with who kind of were like one or two years advanced and knew about like underground punk and just kind of opened the door for me. It's interesting though, Guns N' Roses as this on-ramp because they were, as much as they weren't a punk band and kind of the exact opposite of Nirvana and obviously the two bands kind of had a beef back then even. Yeah, Uh, yeah. They are weirdly a band from punk, like Izzy and Duff both being out of punk bands and, and playing in kind of like hardcore bands back in the day and playing these hardcore shows so the, i don't know they're, they're they were in a pre-nirvana world i think a like an alternative kind of punk like beacon in a way yeah i mean especially if you put them up against you know some of their other hair metal brethren yeah. they had the edge yeah i was always kind of looking for the edge you know not yeah. the guitarist but um yeah <laughs> or the wrestler yeah 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 that's right that's right um <laughs> Yeah, no, I know. I mean, I, I guess that grit and that sort of like real world thing, like I would say like that, like, you know, Metallica, I was fine with, but they didn't grab me the same way like Guns N' Roses did or stuff that seemed more like from the streets, you know, mm-hmm. even if it's like a full fabrication, I found that more appealing. Yeah, there was kind of like a Dead Boys vibe to it. Like, obviously, I didn't know the Dead Boys then. And, and I think probably probably heard Ain't It Fun for the first time when Guns N' Roses covered it. Yeah, I mean, the Spaghetti Incident was my first ever CD purchase, actually. What were you buying before? Tapes, I guess? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a... The CD was just so much more expensive at the time that, like, by the time CDs became affordable... Yeah, I guess Spaghetti Incident, Use Your Illusions Volume 1 and 2 were also, like, early CD-type purchases. But prior to that, it was, like, the worst format ever in the tape. No, (laughs) yeah, for sure. (laughs) They always broke they always like they never yeah I, I never took a love to tapes honestly i mean i i loved having them when that was the option but i was eager to move on to cds for sure my last tape deck ribbon just broke so i can't play any of these tapes that i'm like surrounded with now it's just oh like, man yeah like i appreciate that they're like what they exist as today kind of like an actual thing that you can make cheaply and sell cheaply it's like the last cheap thing mm-hmm. you know and that's a great thing, but I don't really want to sit there and play a tape, I guess. I don't know. Well, I think it's important. Like, the advancement of the tape was just such a huge thing for punk, metal, and hardcore, and all these musics that didn't have the attention or the economic means to to reproduce them. Like, you can really see the importance of this thing, but when that tape revival happened, I was like, this is not, like, the record revival at all. Yeah, I mean, it was cool when it's, like, a means to an end rather than, like, a tchotchke you know yeah tower records in times square is a legendary tower records tower records in general was a really cool mainstream chain store like one of the few stores that carried zines yeah yeah no that was all like that was my probably my only time going into that shop too and just being blown away you know yeah i went into it when i went to new york it was like uh 
like a music nerd tourist attraction coming from Canada. Like you got to go to that Tower Records in Times Square and, <laughs> and see all this cool stuff they've got there. Oh, for sure. To hear. And it was a, uh, like, like you're saying, it's an overwhelming feeling walking into a store like that. And, and now it's obviously completely different in the way you consume music where it's Tower Records times 10 walking in. Yeah. But especially when you didn't have the roadmap yet to put it together to know which section to dig into or which records to look for. Yeah, there was like a small record shop in the town that I lived in in, in northern New Jersey that was like, you know, had a guy with like shaved head, like braid on top, like kind of like Nine Inch Nails fan, you know, yeah. like, and this is like 92 or something who worked there. And I remember um, like seeing a biohazard picture, di you know, the orange vinyl, like with no cover. And I, I didn't know what it was. You know, I'm like, this seems really cool, but like, is this like a, a memorabilia? Like, what do you do with this? You know, like. It just, I didn't know that it was a record that you played, yeah. you know, it just seemed like, and I didn't really know much about Biohazard either, except they had like a sick logo and, you know, like Beavis and Butthead probably liked them or something. They were know? on the Judgment so, Night soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there was like an awareness, but not like I didn't knowledge of their music. Yeah. And, uh, and that, that also that store, um, I was a huge Rage Against the Machine fan before I got into punk, you know, still am, I, I suppose. And they had like a CD I'd never seen before by them for like $25, which was unheard of. And it actually was just like a bootleg of a live show. But I, I didn't like understand that. And then when I bought the CD, it had like a different band's name printed on it. And I was just like furious that they like stiffed me, you know, just like, so I didn't have like an older sibling or like an older friend at this point to, to explain things. And I just got a lot of things kind of wrong or was confused at first, you know? Well, and that's, there was like a real trial and error process to figuring this stuff out then. Cause you were, like you're saying, like these formats weren't necessarily talked about. So you didn't necessarily know, let alone what the bands on them were. I, I remember yeah. going to HMV here in Toronto, which had a kind of a cool punk, I guess back then it was the, the alternative section they called it first and they had a copy of the no effects ho effects 12 inch and same sort of thing like i looked at it i'm like okay i've heard of this band no effects but like i don't know if i can get my parents record player working to, to you know and it's always been a big regret and then i found out later years later that mike from fucked up actually bought that copy <laughs> HMB, oh, wow. before we knew each other and oh, then traded to be yeah they traded it for two violent children bootlegs and totally got stiffed in the trade because that yeah all that stuff's worth so much money now with the pop-up oh, man. Stuff. Like, did you get a chance to go to any live concerts before moving to Pennsylvania? No, no. Like, I concerts weren't, like, a part of my life, really. Um, I, I, I first went to shows, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, once I figured that out, and I went to, like, a fire hall show, and it was just, like, the best thing ever, you know? And then it was, like, why would I ever buy something that has, like, a ticket, you know? <laughs> Yeah. And go where like someone's like there's security. Like it just didn't make any sense. Like I loved shows and like the, the DIY aspect. It just was so much fun. You know, like I've always wanted to like create stuff. And that was just like, everyone here is like a year older than me. And they've created this world that they just created. And that was like the coolest thing to me, you know, like the accessibility 
and just people I knew. I mean, they were like stars to me, but they were also regular people. I don't know. It just was so alluring. I think to this day it ruined music any other way but this. Like, uh, I, I take my kids sometimes to see big concerts or, you know, artists that they're more familiar with that are are removed from it. And it's just, I just couldn't imagine engaging with music like that. Like, once you've been to a shitty community center show and felt the power of, like, a like a Los Crudos or a Drop Dead or, or just, like, any number of Oh, these, for sure. You know, like, how do you go back to the stadium, no matter how great that Kiss show is? Yeah, yeah. No, no, I feel, I mean, I've been to, like, concerts since then, but it, it's, like, I put it in, like, a, a different bracket in my brain, you know? It's, mm -hmm. like, a different form of entertainment. Mm -hmm. than going to a show for sure were you already a wrestling fan at this point like had you gone and seen live wrestling i hadn't seen that either but yeah for sure like you know since eight years old or whatever like i, I broke my leg in second grade and it was like the first time i was awake till like midnight and it was like you know they had like saturday night's main event and i yeah. remember just being like oh my god this is the spectacle like i love this too for sure and yeah. yeah, it's just like also like a private thing that, man, then I moved to this really small town in Nazareth and like make my best friends for life who are like independently into the same stuff, you know? Yeah. It's really cool that you've, you found that. Cause I think I, I like, I definitely met kids at different stages that were into punk and into hardcore, but it wasn't until later on when I started getting more into like the DIY shows like how tapped into kind of like the DIY stuff. And I guess like at that point, was it like plow United and thrill throttle jockey? I think they were called right. Or, or thrill yeah, yeah, no. yeah. Yeah. No, that stuff for sure. Yeah. Like that was like the Westchester bands and like, I mean, it was also very much like zine based, like who's advertising. That was like, what, like Coolidge records or something mm. really small. Um, local labels but yeah we would get super into that stuff this is like also concurrently getting into like bovine records and like buying you know power violence split seven inches while like it was, it was mostly like power violence and like pop punk were like the two interests you know uh, they, they were just like they were most active i don't know like mm. you know hardcore was was what it was still like kind of new age records at that point which I didn't gravitate towards like I wanted fast music, I guess. And, um, you know, this was before like youth crew came about in like 99 or so like the revival, I guess. So yeah, it was just like finding grind and like fast hardcore bands and, you know, the queers and pop punk and plow United, whatever, any bands that sound like that. Yeah. You were kind of like, and I was the same way. I, I wanted stuff. Like as much as I had liked the victory stuff and, but I wanted stuff fast. I wanted like fast hardcore. And that's why there were the few bands like devoid of faith and um, Los Crudos and drop dead. There were like those bands that were kind of like old school sounding or, but it was few and far between. Like you're saying that being said, I talked about this with Brad bovine records, some of the greatest music ever released. On oh that. yeah. I love it. Yeah. I mean, and just like, the split seven inch presentation is such a good like gateway. Cause like, you know, one band, but you don't know the other, you know, it's all just like making like connecting different, you know, little neurons in my mm -hmm. brain of like figuring out where are these bands from? Like, okay, 
apartment 213s from Ohio. That's that's I'm going to file that away, you know, like stuff like that. Like, uh, I don't know. It was just an exciting time. And you could like kind of get all the records, you know, like if you tried hard enough or like pooled with your friends, there wasn't such a like a volume. It was like, no, you can kind of get everything. You know, like mm. vacuum distro only has so many like slap a ham records that are available and they're not super expensive. You know, you could, you, it was almost achievable. I think the thing that kept me from ordering from vacuum was the, the, the fact that your package would probably get seized and you'd have to pay oh, duty shoot. on it coming into Canada. But you're right. Like just going over that catalog. And then when he, when he sold his collection and there was that vacuum auction, uh, I remember that, that. That was huge. Like for in a pre eBay universe, that was like a seismic record sale. Did you get anything out of there? No, no. I was really tempted to buy uh, a 16 record. I think I was like, oh, I should buy this. And, and of course just was like, oh, well the exchange rate at that point was also very high. So uh, yeah, yeah. I got uh, the toast LP famous for their <laughs> split with spaz. Yes. And it was like not as good, but it was like you know ten bucks, and I was very pleased with my purchase. So, I love those toasts. I think it's the split was Spaz, or maybe it's just also they had a solo seven inch that's really good too. I, they had definitely had a couple records I remember thinking were ripping, but I don't think I've heard that LP. Yeah, no, it, you know it's fine. Yeah, I, <laughs> but it was more the thrill of getting it and like the provenance of it, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely records in my collection that I hold on to because I know who they came from. And was like, yo, this record I bought at Hits and Misses, but it came from Pink Champions collection. So, yeah, that's it, really cool. There's that. Have you read that book about record collecting? That I think I think it was called Adventures in Vinyl. No, uh, no. It's in. I'll send you the name. I'm, I'm sure I'm fucking it up. But in that, there's a whole chapter about this guy who buys, or a whole section, a chapter about a guy who buys Jimi Hendrix's record collection, so he can have the records that Jimi Hendrix had and kind right, of right, right coveting the fact that certain records were scratched on certain songs and leading him to believe that those were his favorite songs and all sorts of stuff. Like yeah. That. It's a fun way. I mean, I don't know. I, I like, I don't know what's going to happen to my records when I die. Hopefully just, you know, dumped in a landfill quietly, you know, uh, <laughs> lit on fire or something. No, I don't know. But like, it is an interesting way to like review someone, right? Like the like Joe Bussard's collection or whatever of 78, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. Well, there's uh, collections that are donated to places where it's mm. donated en masse and it becomes, I guess, part of an archive. I, I think that's very, uh, that's like the most idealized way for your records to go. Have you watched right, that? Right, right. Have you watched that documentary Vinyl about record collecting? The Canadian no. Film? Well, I, I think it's on YouTube, so I'll send you the link to it. It's by this guy, Alan Zwag, and it's one of the greatest documentaries ever but also one of the most terrifying about lest by the grace of god there go i type vibes where yeah but there's one guy in it who's just so distraught over the fact that someone else could own his records that he quietly <laughs> dumps them all off in a dumpster rather than see them in someone else's hands just so they would be destroyed man yeah that's a it's it's like a wake up call, right? When you see a dude like that to be yeah. like, man, I, I got to get over this shit, you know? Well, there's like <laughs> records in my collection, like that thing with the Peak Champion type record where 
when I die, my kids, this is just a burden for my kids. Like, how the fuck am for I going to sure. prove all this dumb shit? Like, what, right? There's going to be yeah. a massive garage sale outside of my house at, <laughs> at some point, and all this stuff will be available for pennies on the dollar. Like, the typhus flexi for. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that seems like a good way. You know, who cares that when, you know, once we're gone? Yeah, there's almost a romanticism to it, like that you could become <laughs> part of one of those great scores. Yeah, yeah. I mean, which which are like so less prevalent now. I mean, I guess they do exist, but they do exist. But you're right. Like it is. It feels like it feels like now it's only because you're able to take advantage of someone that like is unable to know about discogs in some way. Yeah, somehow, right? Because it's all spelled out there. Yeah. Now that all these things have a defined price, but like in the time we're talking about, until that vacuum auction, a lot of this stuff. It could be worth hundreds of dollars. It could be worth nothing. Like vacuum auction really did establish a value for, especially that '90s stuff, like early '90s stuff. Lady, yeah, no, I mean, like, it was nice when records weren't this like coveted, fetishized thing, like on mass the way it is now. You know, like, because mm-hmm. no one's buying CDs. You know, every, all music is free, so it's all just for like collectibleness and not because like you get to hear it. You know. Yeah because it was fun when things were cheap uh, you know like i'm just like do i have to get into cds now because that's so much fun to like not pay a lot of money and get a lot of music <laughs> yeah. and now it's like the lp starting price of 30 dollars. it's just you know i don't know who's able to have fun at that level you know like well because like you're saying it's not about it's not a functional artifact anymore like it yeah. is functional for people like us that I guess have nostalgia for the ritual, but in terms of like, like a tape and things like that, that is purely collectible at this point and purely aesthetic in a lot of ways for people. Yeah. It's a, I mean, I remember like very clearly hearing about a Chun King that sold for $200 and being like, that is an unbelievable price for a single rec. You know, like yeah. who is, who is this, you know, even when Mr. was that Monopoly, two hundred dollars you know, is was a good price, almost at any time for that record. Like, right? Like, it was just like I'm like, who's you must save up for months, I yeah. guess, to achieve that, and then for what? For one record, and now it's just like, I don't know. There's like a white vinyl rat LP from 2017 that's two hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just it's so stupid. I think. Uh, Mark McCoy and the rest of Charles Bronson owe Felix Von Havoc a, a big apology for clowning on him for buying that sex drive for $600 because he has been vindicated by the fact that that thing is now probably what $10,000 at this oh, point. Man, I don't even, yeah, that's it's really it's, gross. It's also unappealing, you know. It is, it, it definitely has taken a lot of the fun out of it, and also knowing that with the right amount of money, any record barring things that only exist in like one or two copies, but anything could be had now for the right price. And it like before when these things were cheap or when the value was really decided by the person that wanted to purchase it and the seller more than like some speculative market thing, it was, it was different. And yeah, yeah, no. And yeah. I still love buying dollar bin records and like, there's still, a, there's still stuff that I, I find it has forced me to open up my palette to records a lot more. 
and like what I'm interested in and things that collecting things that people don't necessarily covet right now in the same sort of way. Like a lot of UK late eighties, uh, poppy hardcore, you know, whatever. Yeah. yeah. It is, is fun to get into. Like, I'm just like a voracious listener in general. And like, I love the intimidation of a new genre to me, you know, and figuring out what I like how do you even like wade through it all? Like that's really satisfying. And that can, you can buy zero records. You can just check, you know, songs mm -hmm. out online, whatever. Like it doesn't have to be about like accumulating so much as just like learning. Like that's, you know, I, I love just learning and getting turned on to cool stuff that I didn't know about like yesterday, you know? I also love like personal white whales of records, like finding records that there's not like, it's not a, a, a chunking or a vengeance or something like that but it's uh, i i texted brad about it when i found it found an ultimate warriors record with a uh jughead's revenge sleeve Ooh, done yeah. over as an ultimate warriors record one of the coolest finds i've ever had Man. in california at a spot. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah there's you must know alex sanchez right absolutely yeah, yeah. he's just been like um making ultimate warriors records for the past 20 years <laughs> like on his own accord and it's kind of it's just it's just amazing you know like uh i don't know they just keep new new versions keep arriving much to our chagrin so he's like conquer the world of the the, yeah. <laughs> the pennsylvania area yeah no it's just like uh i don't know some some people's uh love language is uh making records making dumb limited editions you know <laughs> I think Jughead's Revenge, though, are one of the most underrated bands of that sort of epifat wave of bands. Oh, man, I never listened to them. Oh, they are like like an epifat poison idea. Huh. Like, it, they do a poison idea cover, even, but it does have that <laughs> same sort of kind of wow. Jerry A vibe to the vocals, even, in a way, oh. but, but definitely Southern California. And they were nearly suited to a... They were nearly sued into oblivion by the Archie. Oh, really? Too. So, <laughs> quite the triumph. But oh man, that's funny. So, where were the uh, what were the bands in Nazareth? N Nazareth, sorry. Um. Well, it was like before I I like before I was in a band. Brad had a straight edge hardcore band with Randy called Nothing Said. Um, I, all, all of those guys. There was four of them. They became my closest friends. You know, then and to a point now, you know, yeah. like three of them are still like my best buddies. Um, Randy was doing like kind of like a faster punk band called the spunk also with like lifelong friends of mine now. So it was like nothing said in the spunk. And then I, I don't know how it happened, but I got lucky enough to start doing a band with uh, Brad and Randy and another buddy of mine who like, you know, was into it in like freshman, sophomore year junior year of high school was kind of drifting and then senior year was like done with music yeah. you know yeah. and that band was called citizens unheard that was like the first band i played a show with um i sang and like weirdly enough i like wrote a bunch of the music too which like i haven't written like music in many years i feel like and um those guys who were clearly more experienced than me were just like all right let's you know play some of your songs too it was it was like very flat it, it gave me confidence in a way you know 
Were you playing the songs for them, or were you doing like hardcore singer style, like da 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 da? And no, I had, like, doing it? I had a bass guitar. Okay. And so I had like you know, and I had like two fingers on one hand and like two fingers on the other, you know, and I could kind of just demonstrate the riffs, mm-hmm. and they could kind of put it together, and like it's interesting to think about it because I I had like so little going on in my life at that time or like my, my the scope of my life was like this yeah. where like the songs were mostly about what my friends looked like you know <laughs> like and it wasn't intentional but i remember like the first song i wrote was called me and joel looked the same and it was about how i looked similar to joel and it was kind of like honestly it sounds like a piss jean song in retrospect <laughs> like the riffing is very like in that you know, fang school of like, just kind of downer, like three notes sort of thing. Like, you know, where your fingers first go on the, on the neck of a guitar, like those notes. Um, But it was fun. It was like such a blast. I loved it. I loved like right away felt comfortable singing in a band. It was great. Would you guys like, who would you guys play with? Like who, like a local band club? There was a club called Scarlet's, which had like a lot of hardcore shows. Like I've seen no redeeming social value there. You know, I saw like Rancor 97A there a bunch, Floor Punch. But it would also be like uh, just like high school bands where they would try to get you to sell tickets to play. But I feel like I never did sell tickets and I played there anyway. So I'm not really sure what exactly, you know, the, the, the path was to performing there. Yeah. But yeah, we just played there a whole bunch and that was that was kind of the only place I think we played. We might probably played like six shows maybe. Would like the Ultimate Warriors came about. Would like Digger come through and and um West Yeah, End? they they didn't exist yet. They were like okay. give it a give it like one or two years and then yeah, Digger arrived for sure. But, That's uh, when Tim Heidecker I guess had his band with all the guys that got stolen to form Digger. Really? When he was on the podcast, he he said, "Yeah, because he's like a, from a town away from me, so it's funny. I had no idea back then." Yeah, he's like an Allentown dude, and when I brought up Digger, he's like, "Yeah, those guys were all in my band," and then they, I I was actually super pissed off because they all got stolen away to join. You Digger. know what? The Digger was great, man. He should have give it up for the cause. You know, like they have like at least one solid album, and I, tragically, the one guy died very early yeah. on. Um, that was his best friend. Tim's best oh, friend. Oh shit, Phil. Yeah. Yeah. He he like was the spark and digger for sure. Cuz they by the time they played Toronto, I think they played Toronto maybe in a couple times uh back then. Uh, he I he was out of the band. It was like the hopeless era cuz I think he passed mm. away fairly early on, right? Yeah, but, yeah. Um, yeah, they had a song, do you remember I want my hat back? Yes. I had that 7-inch. Like, that song like I always would sing the one quiet part when they were playing and I like would be really proud and psyched to be like the loud kid in the crowd, you know, like yeah. it was just like a good time going to see them. You know, you knew you were going to have fun. It felt like, like it, what could have been obviously being a, a huge leap, but that that was like a blink One Eighty Two vibe of a band by the time i saw him the lineup had changed slightly i guess so yeah but that, i, I remember like, hearing that seven inch and being like i this is as good as eminem by blink yeah i mean the problem is like they matured you know yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> like you know they like probably got like more sensitive got like more complex songwriting and that that'll do you in sometimes you know yeah. becoming a good musician and it also feels like it's always the outliers from the scene that become the huge stars. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
like the band that everyone's like those guys those that's that's the band that everyone gets yeah into. who's always a little bit late yeah. and like able to bring it to a wider audience mm -hmm. for sure yeah it's interesting i'm sure like obviously being on the label when you encounter people from seattle that were like hardcore kids that just did not like nirvana mm, yeah because it's just like a complete obviously a completely different relationship when you're from a place versus when you're for sure but you're like oh yeah it's kind of like that anywhere there's a big band where yeah people yeah yeah i mean although i feel like my area never had a big band really like what felt biggest to us was weston i don't know weston, if you ever yeah like, but like they're kind of a footnote in the greater scheme of like poppy yeah. punk even though i think their first album is like one of the greatest of all time like for me of pop punk i love that you know it, just, it was just so like unique Mm -hmm. And like scrappy, but also like a lot of interesting thoughts. You know, the great lyrics really, really, really resonated with me. Yeah, they were a band that uh, I like you can go back and listen to. Like it was pop punk, but it was pop punk that you could you weren't like <laughs> ashamed a couple years later. Yeah, well, I mean, like to. some of their later albums were like, what is this like, you know, soda shop? sock hop like varsity sweater cry you know like because the one dude took over songwriting from like chuck and dave who were like the greatest duo you know yeah. and um i saw weston did a, like a reunion i don't know probably like eight years ago now and like dave knew who i was and like i almost just shit right there you know like i couldn't believe like he was just the coolest guy you know what i mean like yeah, yeah. so he would always just appear and like I remember one time he showed up at like a, a, like a VFW show for no reason. He was already like well beyond that. And he was talking about the Bliarg comps. And I was just like, man, how can one guy be this cool? You know, yeah. like I want to just like tail him and listen, you know? Yeah. But... Yeah. They, they felt like they, I think also it was so much about labels back then and winding up on the right label and they signed to go-kart. And it feels like go-kart was maybe not the best fit for a lot of these bands. Cause yeah. if they had been on a lookout or I guess epitaph and fat had such defined sounds. So lookout would have maybe been the only place that would have made sense. Yeah. There, there wasn't a great place for them to go. Cause yeah, they had like, they had like a little bit more sophistication or like maybe smarts is the word at first is that it wouldn't have fit with just like your generic, pop punk band that like were kind of nimrods you know like there was something going on with them that like adults could enjoy perhaps you know mm -hmm. i'm obsessed with like the way bands and obviously scenes are as we've already touched on like are taken up geographically and how on the east coast this pop punk dillinger four i including the midwest and the east coast but it pop punk did have this sort of like sophistication with a lot of these bands and they were like smarter or like lifetime, right? Yeah, lifetime. Exactly. And more connected to DIY than the West coast bands, which were, were just felt a lot bigger and felt like a lot more jocular in some ways for. Yeah. I mean, I stuff. think it's that, 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 that feels like a, a, a reasonable impression, you know, for sure. Mm -hmm. I definitely re re related more to the East coast bands, you know, when a West coast band would come through, they did seem a little like, you know, pro gear, pro tude sort of vibe that would be fine, but it wouldn't be like, 
cool, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that's why Toronto connected so much to that California band thing, because it is a music industry town. And there mm. was a defined pathway to success by playing this music. Like in America and California, if you if you were a band and you got really popular on Epitaph or Fat, you could get a song on K Rock, and then you right. could kind of you know launch it from there. But in Toronto, kind of had the same thing. Like you could get a song on much music. Like there was a uh, whereas I, like you're saying, there's not really a place for these bands to go in Pennsylvania that are playing this kind of music, or in New Jersey, or even in New yeah. York. Yeah. And I mean, and they would also be playing with, you know, more like East coast metallic, like revelation records bands at the time too, you know, or like born against, or, you know, like it was just kind of more geographic. Like you just get used to playing with people, even if your bands don't sound alike, like, okay, here's the bouncing souls playing, you know, yeah. like, cause we're all kind of live near each other, you know, yeah. and we're on like, you don't really do big tours. Maybe you do sometimes, but not in the same. It was more about like fostering a scene, I think. And there's also like, I think there was more of a fest circuit too for a while where, and I was pausing numbers being kind of like, I guess the one. Yeah, that, that was by the time like I was playing. Yeah, we played positive numbers a couple of times. Wilkes Bear Fest. Yeah, for sure. Before that, and the, like more than music and. Yeah. Uh, whatever the Dayton one was that used to happen before that mud fest maybe, or something like that. Or mm. no, there's a few of those fests. Yeah. Like kind of moment more that you said more than music. Right. I think that was one in Columbus. Yeah. Maybe that was Columbus fest. I mean, they're both the same thing. Who knows? Detroit fest. Um, and it, it oh, that yeah. was the circuit, right? Like you'd go, bands would go and play these fests. You could try and go to as many as you could. Kids that were able to would follow it around like the grateful dead. <laughs> right right yeah yeah no that that was a that was a cool thing i mean i i also just remember that would shows that would be like starts at noon ends at like 9 p.m and it'll just be like i guess it's a fest but it's like not really you know it's not the way we think of fests today where it's all branded and like there's passes and it's a full weekend just kind of like a long show you know mm -hmm. it's also weird to think of this in the terms of like no one was making money on this shit at all. Yeah, yeah. And the motivation to do it was just because you loved it. And I'm sure there that obviously happens with a lot of festivals now, but there's also like an upside financially for the bands, potentially for the people doing the festival. And that's what you're saying. Like it's a lot more pro. There's backstage passes, there's potentially sponsorship on some of these things. And it's interesting to think of something where it was only done for the love of doing this thing. And no one really even had a great time at these events. Like, like you're saying, it's like 12 hours of a lot of yeah, times I mean, super shitty bands. And I mean, I, looking back, I remember feeling like, oh, man, this is massive. Like this fest. This is sick. There's all these bands here. And it ends up probably being like 80 people, you know, like yeah. at the event. But it felt so <laughs> larger than that, you know. And I think it's because also back then it felt so much smaller in general, this whole scene felt as For much sure. as there were divisions, right? Like, it, like pop punks would play with the revelation sounding bands because there yeah, yeah. that many of us. And the, uh, I think that's the thing about the, when there is an upside to it and there is a path to success in doing it, it becomes 
a lot more uh it changes the motivations yeah yeah no it's definitely i mean it's fulfilling to be in a band nowadays but you know there maybe some of that magic is a little bit missing you know <laughs> compared yeah. but of course that could just be being 16 years old you know versus being older it felt it felt like back then also there was a uh you'd make an unspoken commitment to this thing. Like the, uh, the idea that you were going to get the job as the editor of Max rock and roll. And it's basically like a vow of poverty that you were never <laughs> allowed to make money doing this full-time job of editing this right. incredibly influential magazine that had incredible distribution, but you could not make money doing this thing. That's the caveat to, to I guess it also it. speaks to like, everyone was kind of doing all right back then, you know, like, I think it was yeah. a lot easier to kind of scrape by or maybe we were all still living with our parents or, you know, some combination. But, yeah, I feel like it's way harder to be 20 years old now and try to just follow a passion that makes you no money. You know, mm -hmm. like, I don't know, just, just the price of everything going up or whatever, just like, you know, you can't just like casually go to college now. It's so absurdly expensive. You know, there's just less free time for kids. I don't know. And, and everything's monetized or potentially yeah, monetized. Yeah. And it's I, like, and I, there is always that risk of sounding like the old person complaining that it's worse now. I think it's not, it's just so different. And just, I just think it's worse for the kids. Like they have yeah. it worse, you know, like, I mean, I guess we knew about climate change when we were 17, but like, <laughs> How much were you thinking, you know, like yeah. if, if like a political band's telling me to recycle, I'll be like, yeah, I'll recycle, but it doesn't feel like the state of emergency. Like it does now that, you know, we clearly weren't it caring enough snow back here then. anymore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, like it was... it's really, I think we're already like reaping what we sowed just recently. And I feel bad for like young kids who didn't get to have that, like carefree time, you know, it felt like a lot of it too was uh prophesizing this era that we're in now there's this doom prediction thing and we're dancing having a good time singing along like yeah you know one day there's gonna be a fascist president in place and uh, you know, in canada there's like all sorts of shit here so i'm not pretending like it's only in america and now we're in that that moment where it's like damn this is exactly what jello was warning us about this is <laughs> all yeah it's nasty now. yeah i mean like I don't know. I never like was a kid who was scared of like getting shot. You know what I mean? Like I yeah. knew like some person that had to have a gun, but I wasn't reading in the paper of like, you know, random shootings. It's, it's all so much worse. So I feel bad. I hope the kids today can like persevere. And I also don't hold it against them for wanting to get paid. You know, like yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's like an interesting development, you know, like, seeing a young hardcore band put out like a tip jar or, you know, something that would have gotten them like dismissed from the scene in 1997. And now like, you know, like charging maybe a premium on their band shirts or something, mm -hmm. but like they've got to, you know, like, whereas we had like more of a luxury, maybe like me speaking as like middle-class suburban of kid of the nineties, you know, like we could just go to a thrift store buy a bag of shirts for like a quarter each and screen them, you know, like yeah. it was easier if you knew what to do, you know, there was also a commitment to, uh, 
poverty. Like you will pay no more than this much for this record. You will. Yeah. Yeah. You will. We're just trying to keep it. Like we don't want this to become a money thing. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And I want to say a commitment, to, but like you, you hear these stories about Fugazi back then living on beans on, on like rice and playing these $5 shows. And they, they clearly made money. There was money being yeah. made at some point, but never, they never exploited it to, the extent that they could have obviously and that was the model that was like all right that's the chase model or or it was los crudos or it was like all these bands that were like you do it because you fucking love it and you, yeah yeah and yeah i hope there's still some aspect of that just doing it for the love because that does seem to be like lost a little bit maybe because it's so like there's so many roadblocks to just doing it in general now you know like there's a million bands out there and they're all their music's for free right now like that's tough, tough. You, know, yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah. how do you get heard i don't know how do you i don't know it's it is um well like it was easier back then because there was no attention on it in a lot of ways so when there was yeah yeah, so there was attention put on something everyone looked there was and this isn't just music like film had this too where there's almost like layers of a critical sphere where you could get written about in max and rock and roll or your band maybe even get written about in spin or it could get written about in any number of other places you could show up in a weird place in media and and that would be like a huge metric for success or i remember the first time i got written about max rock and roll just like the the level of pride that i had that oh my oh, god it's the best feeling right the, the yeah. band name in all caps the way yeah. they do it yes yeah and when they liked something and you're like holy this is important this feels so what like that that was all the success a band needed to achieve and i feel there, that doesn't exist anymore. There's no more film threat to write about your like weird self-made movie and to put you on the cover of film threat magazine or to get into some yeah. weird, it just doesn't exist in that way. Now it's all, it's all or nothing. And there, there yeah. definitely, it still goes on. There's still DIY shit all the time, obviously in every city. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know, like, I feel like it's so easy to do a, a one person bedroom punk project now, just with the technology that exists where maybe you feel a little less pride in successfully putting out a demo now than like in 1996 when you had to have friends and like someone had to know what they were doing, you know, someone had to know what a four track is Mm -hmm. and like how to operate it. And then like to duplicate cassettes, like that was all very thrilling because it felt like, you know, a secret portal being unlocked and then to send it and have someone else dig it. Like, that was the greatest thing. Like the first music I ever released was um, a cassette compilation that Brad and I put together um, of just like, it was kind of like a mixtape. Cause there was also just random tracks that we liked, like, you know, like a, a body count song. We're like, Oh, let's put this on here anyway. <laughs> and there was like a bootleg live Weston song. And then just various bands that were just us, you know, like in different configurations. And I, we just made them and like, you know, photocopied them, hand drew them, made a booklet and brought them to Double Decker, um, the record shop. And we're like, do you want to sell these? And like he did. And just going back and seeing that the pile went from like five of them to like three. 
and just be like, who are those two people that bought this? Like, this is so great, you know, like so much fun. It's also the only place where you can kind of just do that was punk. Like that you could just be a kid and be like, ah, fuck, let's make a tape and put it out and people are going to buy it and respond to it. Or people might even review my band. And yeah, take people it took it seriously. That yeah. was what was amazing. You know, that what felt so good was like, wow, you, you liked this thing that I put into the world, you know? And we just truly just put it into it from our like bedrooms in our parents' houses, you know, like, mm. Oh, that was the best. It's kind of amazing that the three of you have had this sort of creative collaboration that obviously piss jeans is a very long running band but yeah yeah this goes back to pre-ultimate warriors like this has been uh, for sure and it's rare to be able to have on any level an artistic project with collaborators that goes on for for like five years no I i feel very lucky also like you know what helps me feel lucky is if i ever try to play music with other people you know and you're like oh this is cool or like this is awkward or this is good, but it's still not like that, like deep bond that I feel mm-hmm. lucky to have with like anyone, you know, I think that no, it's like cool. John Worcester, when he was on uh, one time talked about the internal metronome that uh, songwriters have, like when you, whatever he's like, cause he's obviously collaborated with so many people over the years that yeah. Every songwriter, he says, has like an internal metronome that's that's the way they write. And it's very unique to that person. And over time, working with the same people, and obviously with Fucked Up, it's been slightly less time than yourselves. But I don't think I can. It's very weird when I collaborate with other people and I go into other situations because I just don't feel. I don't feel as comfortable Ever. Yeah, I mean, it's good to not feel as comfortable. I mean, it's, it's good to, like, remember what you had. Like, it's a reminder, you mm-hmm. know, of, like, how good you have it, kind of. Mm-hmm. How easy things come with other people. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I feel lucky. We 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 got really into, like, self-mythologizing uh, at an early age, too, because we all lived in Nazareth. And, um, you know, against our better judgment, we were all big fans of the One Life Crew album. Um, and so <laughs> they, uh, they, um, you know, called it called Cleveland Clevo. And so we were all like about Nazo and everything was like that. So it was just like the Nazo records compilation, you know? And that was like, here we have an identity here. We have like a crew all of a sudden, you know? Yeah. And it was always like, even then it was also like tongue in cheek, like we're nothing like one life crew. These guys are idiots, but it's funny. And also like the riffs are good. And, you know, we've got lots of learning to do in our lives ahead. You you know, it's amazing what a moment crime ridden society was (laughs) in hardcore. It was small enough now that that record had ripple effects. Like when that don't mess with a small town, song or something came out like the level of of just ripples that that thing caused and obviously the lyrics are heinous yeah on on a few of the songs but especially the one super abhorrent yeah yeah i mean i just think like i was just so ignorant too like of just like not knowing about like geography right Mm -hmm. you know i mean Mm -hmm. i'm like 15 years old and yeah i guess i knew it was like a stupid band you know like that but that's kind of all i knew like i probably couldn't have argued my points why they were dumb you know effectively um 
but yeah, no, we just like, and it was just funny because we were like the least tough guys, yeah. you know. So it's like, yeah, let's like uh, talk like how One Life Crew talks about like, you know, shortening the name of a town, you know. I'm sure there were people that took that record seriously, but everyone I knew uh, either hated the record or liked it because they thought it was ridiculous and and yeah slayer like yeah. i mean yeah I don't <laughs> it, it was it, but it was like mike uh from fucked up was listed as a fagario on their website oh really for oh, wow. like he's one of the original one life crew boycott people wow and good for him it, it was because it was but it, like I, I find it the influence of that record on people that listen to it and thought the wrists were super heavy like i'm sure that got me into confront on some level and confronts one of my favorite bands yeah, of all yeah. time. And then it also though inspired in a, in another way, like it inspired by how many people it motivated to, to, to get, to react to it, to try and shut that record down. Like the way it affected victory, the way yeah, it affected like I, integrity. I would love, to, I was like a big fan of heart attack, of course, um, the zine and like, yeah, that's like it gave a great fodder for Heart Attack to explain why One Life Crew was so stupid, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was like helpful for me as a very ignorant person to like see the argument laid out for the first time, you know? It also made like I think hardcore, it's probably cliche at this point, but it's such a precursor to the world we're living in now where it yeah. does kind of illustrate what the way social media functions too, where obviously there's a or sorry not obviously but there's there's going to be a backlash to something and then there's going to be a pro side to it mm -hmm. both of them ultimately feed these sort of content machines and right right are used to generate income for the platforms that they're happening on not necessarily that hard hard attack was motivated by that clint mccard was probably not making buckets of money off the one life crew but yeah yeah you did watch that unfold like it was a reason to buy that magazine to see how they would react to this totally thing that happened yeah no i mean and also like i just appreciated like heart attacks like like viewpoints i wouldn't know about otherwise you know because man i was like truly like just barely not a little boy at the time you know like just so young and like i didn't learn anything in school you know so it was really helpful to like have these things to kind of teach me or give some basic guidelines you know for that i hopefully will continue to question my own beliefs as i get older and smarter you know or that news page in mrr where they'd have that little tiny news section in the magazine that i would be like i, I guess i gotta read this because <laughs> it's, it's here yeah yeah <laughs> but it would be way more informative than what i was learning about in in school oh in totally, current events yeah. class or whatever and way more informative than what i'd see on the news or pick up in discussions from my parents or things like that it was right actually incredible news that we were able to kind of access to and like you're saying incredible thoughts and learning from bands like propagandi as much as you're learning from sure. these other bands that have come up so far that these were portals to information that you wouldn't ha otherwise have access to as just normal kids yeah it was just like a very apolitical time you know how like everything like 
if I, you know, pick up my mail, that's like a political act at this point, you know, we're like yeah. walk the dog. But now back then it was like, nothing was political. It was very strange to think about at least, you know, where I was living, no one talked about anything, you know, <laughs> like I've got, I've weird. got, I've got a set of golf war trading cards that I bought as right. a kid and on a trip to Florida that I picked up. Yeah. Back we then. all knew and, that was like, huh? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was like the extent of it. Right. Like, yeah, there was not even a pop culture response to it. Like it's pre-rage against the machine. So the only place there was seemingly a reaction to it was in places like punk or in sort of, right. I guess, intelligentsia circles type thing but yeah punk which was, were like hard to find you have you yeah. have to know someone for sure you, you have to pay for these universities like the or you'd have to be in these circles whereas punk made this stuff accessible for anyone that was able to pay to come into the show or find a way in on the guest list or help load gear or whatever or yeah get a tape off your friend of this one album like it really was one of the few places that were speaking truth or that, that you had access to kind of these truths of that. And it was cool that like uh one life crew kind of got kicked out, you know, I was like, mm -hmm. Oh, this is cool. Like there were repercussions here. Like this is good to know and see, you know, that like, you can't just be like a bigot, you know? Like, it was, All right. Yeah. It was a mobile, it was a, a mobilization and a very early moment on hardcore internet too. Yeah where these kids could also go on message boards and there were these websites and I guess still BBSs maybe that people were going on and, and talking right. about this sort of stuff, which I'm for myself a little bit later on and maybe for yourself too, was also incredible for when you finally were able to put all these pieces together and figure out not only all of Jello Biafra's bands, but all the random people that, were in other random obscure bands and demo tapes only. And it was a, the uh, hardcore internet was an incredible uh, awakening for record collectors, I think. Yeah. Well, that was also like a tantalizing time because it's like, here's a list of rare punk bands, but you can't hear them because MP3s don't exist. So yeah. write this down and, yeah. uh, you know, like bring this list to someone. Like I remember early on when um I, I was probably like 16, 17 and those bootleg uh, uh, like Japanese hardcore CDs came out like gauze and like gizm and uh, you know, like those showed up and it was like, Oh my God, I can like actually hear this music, you know, like yeah. what an incredible, like, okay, you buy gauze, I'll buy gizm and like, we'll just, you know, listen to them together and just like try to make heads or tails of this. Like, there was just no other way. Well, because even then, those records were ungodly expensive. If you could, yeah, get them. yeah. Like Detestation was like a two hundred dollar record, like hundred. I'm like, where? Where would you like? This was like yeah. pre eBay. You're yeah. you're done for. You know. Yeah, like unless you knew someone that had gone to Japan or was tapped into, it felt like the inner circle of the inner circle were the Japanese hardcore. Yeah, I didn't even. I had no clue. It, it's it's funny, like the reason that like Brad got into hardcore and consequently I did, you know, via him is he had a neighbor who was like, his name was Carl. He was probably like in his early thirties when we were like 16 
And for some reason, Carl was just like, oh, hey, my 16-year-old neighbor, um, here's a tape with United Blood and Capitalist Casualties on it, you know? <laughs> and Brad had it and, like, loved it and then, like, shared it with all of us. And we're like, oh, we love this, too. You know, but it was, like, from an older guy that was just in the neighborhood who somehow had this, like, impeccable taste in, like, you know, 1994 or whatever. Well, that means he would have probably still be into shit if he was into CapCas, right? Because that would have been for sure yeah right i'm like he was like the first person i ever knew who was like a misfits collector you know like and this he probably got it you know really cheap back then because i don't know who was you know there was definitely a fan base in like 93 but it wasn't like it is now you know by any means but yeah it was like thanks to this one random guy who like i don't know he's been to like a piss jeans show in the past five years you know like just kind of a friendly neighborhood savior you know random luck yeah <laughs> it really depended on who was around you for the type of bands oh, you would sure. get into and because like we lucked at like simon harvey living up here doing oh, ugly, right. you know back then i think he was doing discussion back then but he was such an early japanese hardcore obsessive that he would distro hg fact records or he would distro stuff from straight up so you could always kind of I feel lucky about it, but like you had that stuff. And I guess in the same way, well, it feels like there's so many deep heads in kind of your neck of the woods, but double decker, just how many people were heavy duty record collectors and early yeah, on. Yeah, that place, that place really raised me musically, you know, and, and, and Brad too. But like, yeah, I just, I, I just closed. I don't know. I'm sure, mm -hmm. you know, like in December and man, mm -hmm. that was like a gut punch that I've like, come to terms with because things change but that was just such a big part of like all of my musical discoveries for like a very large chunk of like my most impressionable life you know like teenage years 20s and such like i remember going there once and that was the first time i heard hyrax you know they had like a hyrax record and like that just blew like I'm, i don't think i've ever been blown away by music more than that moment like standing there when uh was it Kenyon's vocals come in and like it was just so sick? Or what was it? What was the singer's name? Did I get was, that right? Um, now I'm blanking on two uh, pen. Oh fuck! Yeah, uh, but I have regardless, it was yeah. like you know it'll forever resonate that moment of like, man, I just entered another world just like two seconds ago. You know? Yeah, it was. I didn't go till way after this point, like into the early 2000s or i guess it was like 2000 yeah, yeah something that i went and it was uh just to this day like some of the one of the greatest selections of records for sale that i've ever yeah, it would seen just always be changing and like fairly priced and jamie who was like after like a few early years there was jamie and amy and amy like left and it was just jamie for god like you know at least 20 years or something he was just like the sweetest guy you know such a good friend like just for to be into records and to like not rip people off ever i guess it's you shouldn't get like a gold star for that but somehow you also should you know because he was just the most trustworthy guy who will also turn you on to stuff you never knew about you know like the first time like have you heard of killed by death you know all these things that were just like I probably would have found out some other time, but like he really helped, you know, and then the random collections he'd get in where he doesn't know about like Mersbau, 
but he got like a bunch of these records in and like I could sift through them myself, you know, like some other guy I know who's a big, weird creep, like in the best way says I should check out Arab on radar. So like, all right, let me listen to this bit. You know what I mean? Like just endless, so many wonderful moments of like discovering stuff by being in there in person and, and seeing what shakes out, you know? Yeah. There's a, uh, a special place for record stores like that, that had a, uh, like a purity to it. And maybe that's the thing that it couldn't survive in this world where. No, it was surviving. Great. He just got sick of it. It was like, Oh really? Yeah. He just, good to he, hear then. it's, it's weird. Like it, when I went there for the, I guess for the first like 15 years of its existence, I will like roughly estimate it was like a punk and hardcore, like hub. Like it was with the meeting place. The It was just like the, the sun in that, like, you know, orbit. And then in the past few years, it became like, there's just like this rash of like norm weirdos who are just into like records, you know, yeah. like, yeah. Oh, Amy Winehouse box sets, you know, or like ACDC, like new remastered, like just stuff that it's like, all right, I guess but totally divorced from like this is active new current like modern hardcore that's happening right now you know like the focus shifted even though those records were still there it was just like the people that inhabited the shop changed mm -hmm. like the age it went up from like you know a median age of like 19 to like 65 somehow you know it's like being at a record fair yeah yeah it really and i mean the reason he was thriving is because it's like best prices got in tons of cool stuff. So, you know, so knowledgeable and, and comfortable to go there. But yeah, I miss the like punk meeting house feel of like, you don't know who you're going to see in there. Maybe like, Oh, maybe those um, tear it up and down in flames guys will be like in town and we'll like kind of look at each other and like maybe yeah. say hi. Cause we're like aware of each other, but not like friends yet, you know, like, it was cool when it was, you know, oh man, like hot water music is randomly in town. Is that them? Yeah. I, I miss that, that little bit of magic, you know, cause that was super fun. It was the place you had to make that trip to when you were in that area, you'd always drive to Allentown to check out. Yeah. yeah. Because it was, it was so discouraged too. I think on in Seattle a little bit later too, it kind of had that reputation where you would go to these places because there's no other place to get these records like that. Like you go on eBay by these point, by some of these, I guess later on, but yeah, they were never as fair price, but there's also that music yeah. discovery side where you're going to hear about something you had no idea about. And there was like a, a happening scene in the area when I was like a teenager and in my twenties, like there were, you know, shows with bands from all over the world coming through like on a DIY level all the time like multiple venues it was great you know it's amazing how many cities and small smaller cities and smaller towns around that area could sustain vibrant hardcore shows and and had completely unique scenes with different kids and different bands that geographically are like on top of each other like how many little yeah. separate scenes there are in pennsylvania yeah i mean like before my time there were shows with like bold and Warzone all the time, you know, like though that was pretty commonplace for like kind of the, 
what like the second wave hardcore bands to roll mm. through and like play banger shows where people went off you know like it had that like history and continued and i don't know about now i haven't like i haven't lived there in, in quite some time so hopefully there's like kids doing stuff that someone like me would have no clue about but it did feel to like like it, it kind of you know like people moved away and mm. then things change when uh when uh elgin was on the podcast from uh righteous jams and and um i guess back then it was wrecking crew he talked about like wrecking crew playing this show there one time with all these new york hardcore bands it was kind of like the the end of the new york boston beef that day because they they had to fight like a trillion nazis that showed up at allentown at that show yeah that was such an issue yeah i was gonna say was this still an issue that you guys had to deal with when you were going to shows not like peripherally but they weren't interested in us 15 year olds, you know? Mm. And uh, like, yeah, they just weren't coming to those shows or if they were like, everyone would be ready. And there would be like one of them who mm. would like hang out outside and then leave, you know, like I never felt threatened by Nazis, although you always knew they were around kind of. And then by the time I was in my twenties, I really don't think they were around you know like they just it was like true diy like crust punk scene or like noise and like you know avant-garde weird experimental stuff and there was no time or place for like nazis to really show up in those scenes i probably was just a little bit young you know if i was like six years older i would have had my share but they kind of just died off for the most part yeah, I think it was kind of the same way in Toronto. There's a couple of shows I can think of where it was a problem. And for the most part, though, the bunch of fucking goofs kind of beat them all up. And I guess that's the thing. There was the generation before that that fought them out of the scene. Or by this point, they were just weren't into the music anymore. It didn't feel like it was an active recruiting ground. But it, it does seem to die out just in time for, I guess, mainstream fascism to start. Yeah, formulating. right, man. Terrible. No, but like, yeah, I, I was lucky to not have to like ever really worry about that. You know, there'd be, it would be more about like cops coming to like shut it down, but even that mm. wasn't too, too often. Mm -hmm. So how long after this sort of first band does ultimate warriors get going? Like immediately, I think, okay. you know, like yeah. it, it probably felt like a long time, but this is all like a span of like eight months or something, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. We kind of just got, we got like the similar crew. I don't know what we were, you know, you can only listen to so much power violence before you want to try it yourself. And uh, that's kind of what we did. We loved like the idea of two lead vocalists. Like that seemed like, all right, this is a gimmick. That's like pretty cool. You know, like no one else really knows about this yet around here. So we're going to do it, you know? Who was the and, inspiration uh, do you think for you on the on two vocalists? Cause I, I'm, I'm obsessed with the two vocalist format for a band that existed in the 90s yeah like i mean a lot of the bands we liked had multiple vocalists doing like you know or at least multiple vocals like mm -hmm. i don't know how many vocalists man is the bastard had but they had a lot of different vocal sounds you know like yeah. spaz had all three guys with their like distinctive voices and uh you know i don't know even like forced expression or like pretentious assholes some like smaller bands where you're like all right i like that there's multiple guys and like let's do that. There's also like, we had enough friends to fill out like guitar, bass, drums, 
and then also have two singers. So it's because there's also that band from PA that's the pre Atari band. I think it's called Blinded. And oh, they like had two Blindside. Is it Blindside? They had two I singers. Think it's I Blindside. Think? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Who like were out of my radar, which is funny because yeah. they were just like four years older and like yeah. a few towns over. But yeah. it was it was so regional then that you wouldn't necessarily know what was happening yeah. four towns over. I, I, yeah, I personally didn't. I'm sure someone in our like crew did that was aware, but no, we we felt like we were just ripping off like power violence, you know, like we were trying to do that. It it feels like that format is gonna come back at some point too for bands. I mean, it's appealing. I don't know. Two of anything can be interesting, like, you know, seized with like two bassists, right? Yeah. Like, all right, let's see what two bassists can do, you know, yeah. or like it opens it opens up possibilities, you know. As a lead singer, though, doesn't it or did it stress you out back then? The parts where you just have to be like, what do you do when you're not singing? Oh, like well, that was like the you just like jump into the crowd, you <laughs> yeah. know? Like it was like I feel like a lot of what I was doing back then, singing, I felt like I had created it, like completely unaware that like Iggy Pop even existed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and just be like, I'm just gonna like hurl myself into the crowd and like we're gonna flop around, like the mic's gonna come unplugged. This is just like what we're gonna do because it's like exciting and it shakes things up. Like, yeah, it was just like a lot of my history is like innocently having no clue about, about like what came before, you know, like, um, but yeah, no, we were super into that and just, there was a lot of room for ad libbing too. So. And also you guys are super early into the, the wrestling punk. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that felt completely novel to me at the time, you know, yeah. I don't know. We were, and, and again, I think it just speaks to like our extremely limited worldview of like, we live in a small town. I don't know what else is out there, but in this small town, there's like my three friends. Let me write about them. There's pro wrestling on TV. Let me write about that. You know, like it was just such a tiny worldview that was like coloring what I wanted to like make music about, I guess, you know, mm -hmm. or like, oh, here's a really annoying letter that someone wrote in like dog print fanzine. So let's write a song about that, you know, <laughs> like microscopic. Like I never had an interest in grand ideas or like share, you know, I, I never wanted to be like the preacher or the like person who understands the world. I wanted to tell you about like the specific parking spot I parked in while going, you know what I mean? I don't know. I just find like the smallest details were what like I always thought I should share. Well, like writing about your friends looking like you. Yeah, exactly. Just like the, the most, microscopic details that's what's like all right let's let's make this our thing and yeah it was just like wrestling we love this we're truly passionate about it it's uncool and let's just make it let's just try to act like it's cool you know there was no cultural capital in being a wrestling fan no at no that point it was it's weird now that there there kind of is in yeah. some ways but yeah no it was just like let's do this and then like it, it kind of aesthetically we're all set, you know, mm -hmm. there's so that we have all these like old pro wrestling illustrated we can cut up if we need to, you know, like wrestling at the time was like very exciting to us. Like what was happening with like WWF and WCW and like ECW and 
Brad was getting tapes from Japan of like deathmatch stuff. So it was all like, yeah, this is like, this is a culture we like, you know? I think also in retrospect, looking at wrestling like music, you guys were kind of in Seattle 1990 or New York 75 for pro wrestling then. (laughs) I mean, I, I still like, I'm just, I can't believe anyone would think it's like cool. You know, like, I don't know. It's just such like a deep little part of me, you know, like mm. that I would never think is impressive, you know, because <laughs> it's just like, it's just like silly fun. You know, it's like, I don't know. I, 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 I obviously will waste your time and punish you about this shit forever. So I, I, I will spare you that right now. But I, I do feel like it is even more than being the lead singer in a hardcore band, it's like a Faustian deal where every time you perform the art, it, it costs you. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And uh, I love that period of it too, because much like we're talking about punk, there was, uh, I'm sure some people that you broke in with and, and, and wrestled with early on had aspirations for where they've now achieved and what they've been able to achieve. But it felt like looking in from the outside, like they're like the distance between WWF E and, and some of the stuff that was happening on the Indies, uh, when the indie explosion really starts bubbling up type thing was as big as the gulf between like the Eagles and black flag. Like it just yeah, felt for sure. completely different. And, and I mean, the Indies like kind of like when, when we were teenagers, the Indies were like, local yokel like nothing remotely cool or punk about it you know it was like a guy that's like clearly trying to dress like a mix of the ultimate warrior and sting and he's called like you know the night train (laughs) and like it was like fun but like also like i feel like there was a level of like irony for our friends to go and like watch this stuff you know like george the animal steals their wrestling you know uh chef wee wee i'm fat or you know like just like really terrible like just no creativity like kind of depressing wrestling and then chikara came about which like four of my good friends maybe more maybe five some like four or five all went and got trained there we're like the first class of chikara which suddenly like showed a new path for what like indie wrestling could be in America where it's like humorous and like kind of letting you in on the joke and a little bit meta, you know, like, cause this was still, you, you didn't talk about wrestling if you were involved, you know, like there was, you didn't have like a reality show. It was a secret, you know, it was yeah. a true Omerta, you know, kayfabe sort of like, this is not for sharing. And then when Chikara showed up with like my friends randomly just taking part, that was such a, like a, a, a revelation that like wrestling could be silly in a way that's novel and like smart, you know? Yeah. It felt like that moment post ECW, like ECW being the Stooges and the Velvet Underground and, and all the protopunk that the stuff that happens afterwards with Chikara uh, and you probably, you know, this timeline better than I do, but then ring of honor and CCW and. Yeah. CCW was like beforehand, but like, like it was like around 
right after ECW, but it was also like, let's take the garbage aspect of ECW yeah. and like amplify that. So that was like thrilling to witness in person, but kind of a dead end. You know, you, you need something else. You can't just have like, this is guy in black athletic shorts A versus guy in black athletic shorts B. And they're just going to like grade each other's skin, you know, like it's exciting, but that, that novelty wears off. I feel like, and I'm sure they've like found ways to evolve through the years, but like Chikara felt like a brand new language all of a sudden, mm-hmm. you know, for me as a spectator, I was, I wasn't a wrestler. I was like peripheral, like manager, you know, referee fan, whatever. Um, But yeah, that was, and then like, I feel like so many big names have come through that, like, if not Chikara directly, but like people who went to Chikara, like, you know, I don't know, like Orange Cassidy or like Claudia Castagnoli, you know, like there's just some really Same fantastic Eddie, yeah. Eddie, Eddie Kingston, you mm-hmm. know, like fantastic wrestlers who are all like so unique who came from that school. So it's like, and like, and it's a great thing. I feel like that's why people who might be more punk like it now because you can see it's it's not just like stereotypes bashing each other you know for like the amusement of the lowest common denominator yeah it feels like post the the big reveal of wrestling where um wrestling admitted it was an art form unto itself and that it wasn't necessarily a shoot fight that you're watching right in the ring there that's when i think it transforms into this sort of like art form type thing and like you're saying chikara is the the purest like expression of this art where it's completely it seems like as a fan watching it and like you're you're there uh, it, obviously in some capacity actually seeing it unfold firsthand but it does feel like this is like sort of this blossoming of this thing as an art form in the same way that czw I do feel, and here we are, we live in a world, like, who would have thought back then that Nick Gage would be fighting the guy from Scream at one yeah, point? Yeah. <laughs> like, there right, was an right. upside to it. Yeah, I feel like also Chikara and that school kind of coming to it with a family-friendly aspect was interesting, because that's, like, an interesting limitation to put mm-hmm. on it, because you have to be entertaining without being shocking, you know? So it kind of forces you to come up with new ideas mm-hmm. like I, I love like you know limitations as like a way of things you're working around to create your art you know because it can lead you to new places rather than like there's no limitation you might take the easiest path you know like and that's what i love wrestling when it is about this limitless art form where you can get people to cry watching it get people to laugh watching yeah, it get yeah. people to like riot grow up yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's there's like a real uh and th- that's never going to be necessarily the same with punk. i guess it is the same with punk but it just feels like you have to do something like one life crew to get people to riot and and you really don't want to one life crew it yeah i mean i, I yeah I don't, I don't know. I feel like maybe like punk, I don't want to like generalize too much, but punk has like a smarter audience, let's mm-hmm. say who's like more finely attuned to bullshit. So to really shock a punk audience in any way that's like positive, 
that's a tough thing to pull off. Whereas in wrestling, maybe it's a little bit easier, you know? I think it's an audience that is more willing to want to believe. Punk yeah, is always yeah, yeah. Look, trying to see through it. <laughs> like, oh, fuck totally. that guy. He's like fake or that band's not this and that's not that or this person's like this. Whereas in wrestling, there's a a, a real hero worship for the people in the ring for and once again not to generalize because there's some people that are complete assholes at these wrestling yeah games, yeah but. and they can shift too where you can be like uh i really hate this wrestler but no like i really hate them like i don't want to see them on tv ever like it's not like fun hate but then like whoa now it turned into fun hate and now it turned into actual love you know like mm -hmm. i appreciate the way your perspective can shift on people depending on what they're doing you know where the angles are headed and yeah, so there, there is more leeway for like opinions to change of people maybe because uh, you are, you're, you're looking to be entertained more than you're looking to like see why the other thing is, is imperfect, you know, like mm -hmm. you would in punk, like, no, 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 this band's fake, you know, like you're saying, you know, for whatever reason. Yeah. And I think there's a willingness to grow with someone you like in wrestling maybe this is what you're kind of yeah 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 that's where, right whereas like in punk there's like oh they they were better when and right in wrestling there's a in punk you you hate the fact that the the hardcore band was playing wembley stadium but with orange cassidy it's amazing to see orange cassidy right right do that in wembley stadium <laughs> that's, that's that's a good point yeah it's uh yeah the, the slight differences between the two worlds but was it did you guys have interactions like were there interactions with wrestlers that didn't like it and like there were people that when you would you ever see that backstage like people that were just like i don't get this side of things because like it's us unique well i mean we played with a lot of like screamo bands too yeah. who i personally like loved like orchid you know i love that first album so much and was thrilled that like we're playing shows with them you know and like jerome's dream and like all that sort of scene and they were definitely not funny band you know the people yeah. in the bands might have been hilarious but i feel like also we were younger and like you know if you're trying to be cool and you've got like that black like locust haircut and like you've got the look down and then we show up just like being stupid goofballs. Like we probably killed the mood a bit. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I feel I, like that's just who we are naturally. Like we just, we didn't, we, we couldn't even pretend to be cool. You know what I mean? Like, uh, but we could pretend to be wrestlers. So we would like play these shows and we had like a crew an entourage that would like you know do bulbs and stuff or like barbed wire while we're playing like we did that at one wilkes-barre fest where we all showed up we were so psyched i don't remember anything about the music but we did have like two like barbed wire walls kind of set up and our friend like a ladder people are getting like you know jumping around it's it's a real spectacle and then the band that played after us was like a very kind of like karate influenced like braid style like emo math rock bands we were sweeping for most of their <laughs> set and you know so like no one was even close to them and i was like i'm amused by this but i also feel like if you told me i was a dick for this i, I couldn't argue you know we tried to bring that you know like that we're silly like we're goose like okay 
Pig Destroyer's up next, and they're dead serious. But I'm going to wear, like, a Stone Cold Halloween mask right now because, like, we love Stone Cold and being goofy, you know? There was this sort of uh, cool sophistication. It's funny because Jason from uh, Orchid was just over today. Oh, He moved to Toronto. And uh, I still feel so much less cool than he is and so much less put together than he is he just moved to toronto he's already got like a bar here like some new music project he's like so much further ahead than me and i've lived here my whole fucking life yeah we like i I never like taught we play shows with them but we would just be like intimidated and also be like big fans of these guys you know and also found we're, we're like you're gonna all regret your locust haircut someday but you do look cool now but we also know you know you know what i mean like we could kind of tell this was just a trendy thing that we weren't like fully partaking in. We kind of dabble in every, you know, it's like, all right, we'll, we'll dread, we'll wear like young blood records gear and like teamwork records, t-shirts, but also love the locust. And, you know, so it was like, we, we never fully committed to one of the like tropes that existed back then, mm-hmm. which also meant we were never like the greatest at any of the, of the tropes, you know? And and it was like a commitment to be, all these things also cost a lot of money. And so it was always like, would I prefer to buy records or would I prefer to dress yeah, more right. like the scene I want to, I'm supposed to be in. And yeah, that was, that was definitely, I mean, when the locusts came through on that tournament, everyone's looks and wardrobes changed here yeah. on the East coast, like overnight t-shirts went from like double XL to youth large, you know, it was the <laughs> locusts are one of those bands. And I guess the refused would kind of refuse would kind of take that sort of aesthetic and even blow it up bigger. But the impact they had on hardcore just in the fashion and also musically like so many bands tried to sound totally. like the locust afterwards and it, it was a uh it was amazing how big these ripple effects would be in hardcore yeah. from these bands because it was such a small scene yeah and again like and locust probably made zero money you know what mm-hmm. i mean like even though they they completely changed it like what everyone was doing how everyone was looking just interesting to think about that, you know, like they were able to put out records and like maybe do a little tour, but like in a terrible van, you know? Yeah. No, I admire, I admired that. Like, even if they're like, they look, they looked crazy. And I thought they looked so cool. It was just like the people that copied them that I would be like, I can, yeah. I kind of tell yeah. where you got this look from, you know, like. <laughs> it was also the proto hipster thing. Like that would yeah. become the hipster thing. I think a few years later. Yeah, like Makeout Club arriving like in that yeah. wake for sure. Yeah, Makeout Club and and well, Jason even talks about because he moves to New York and winds up DJing and all that sort of early meet me in the bathroom kind of stuff. And yeah, a lot of those people have connections, or a few of those people certainly have connections to to hardcore stuff. And this was sort of, I guess, the post hardcore graduation place to go. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was also the rise of drugs coming back into hardcore it felt like hardcore was just so desexualized de-drugged like i'm talking about specifically the sort of like diy scene oh for sure yeah yeah and then it just (laughs) obviously not that way and yeah really all my experience in the suburbs was just like a very light ripple of that you know at that time it was like okay 
a, a locust coke mirror all right i guess i don't know what this is you know like sounds sounds cool who cares you know like remember when dust oath came out and it was like super sexual yeah that was that was a little weird it was and it was especially because it was so removed from that prior to that like that it was even more shocking like it was it was just what they make it they have a dildo they're they're yeah yeah what and i could tell like i'm like i get that this is commentary on something but no clue what that something is you know (laughs) it it felt like this all and it's amazing if you think about a lot of these kids that would wind up being the early for lack of better term hipsters or like the people that would be the tastemakers of the sort of vice post meet me in the bathroom moment that new york was kind of having coming out of hardcore coming out of these really sort of puritanical restrictive scenes it's almost like rumspringa for yeah where you get like this freedom again yeah interesting to see that because i felt like i was still so sheltered like my scenes you know like we were music first like it was never about like um having sex i can attest to that personally (laughs) it was never that was not having sex was not even on the on the table or even missed or cared about it was like no let's do bands you know yes. just yeah. innocent just very innocent where where i was living in a nice way you know i look back from i go there weren't any like crazy terrible things that happened so i feel lucky for that you know but then piss jeans was kind of thrust into the post whatever this world was the vice kind of pitchfork yeah yeah new york moment that this kind of music had i i feel like like maybe maybe i'm just putting that on you guys yeah i I mean i feel like that can be attributed almost like 99 percent to being on sub pop you know what i mean like suddenly having like a known label co-sign us made all these places have to acknowledge you know because I feel like we were still very much punk and like we would hope that, you know, um, Tony Erba or like Felix Havoc would know who we were. That's who that, you know, like it wasn't about like pitchfork. What were they right about? Modest mouse. Like, what does that have to do with anything? You know, like who cares? Like it just felt so, but then being on sub pop, they had to like acknowledge our existence. I think for fear, for fear of being like left out in the dark, you know? They had acknowledged you before that, right? They reviewed the first record. I remember they reviewed that show we played together at, um, fuck, I can't remember the name of the venue. Like in, in New York City? In Brooklyn, we played a show. Yeah. That um, was, a, yeah, that one felt like a, like a, a good, like, oh, mm-hmm. there is a new thing happening that might be interesting to people. Mm-hmm. And it's like punk and hardcore based, you know? Mm-hmm. I think Clock Cleaner played that too and did like Kill Your Idols play or something. Like, I, I'm trying to remember who else played. I know I have a flyer, I think. I feel like there somewhere. was like a weird like outlier. Like, there was a weird Idols outliner. Playing. I don't think Clock Cleaner played. And I'm no, pretty, maybe not. And I'm pretty sure it wasn't Kill Your Idols, but there was oh, man. someone like that. Spanish Bombs, maybe? No. Man, man. interesting. Uh, well, I'll fix this in the intro. I'll figure it out. Yeah, you know, I'm, I, I, can, I can look it up, actually. I like I like have a, a, a long list of all the shows so 
this van very yeah, fucked we, up like we have one of those too i mean oh no no man i'm telling you january 6 2006 at the knitting factory in new york it was fucked up piss jeans clock cleaner conversions and kill your idols i stand yeah. corrected on the clock cleaner i apologize man there you, you have, have it good there memory. you have it and then the next night, I mean, like, fucked up, play with hard skin in Philadelphia, and we played that too. Yeah. And I thought, um, how cool is it to, you know, be playing these shows with fucked up? You know, <laughs> like, what a great thing. Oh, I, I still have, like, I remember getting that record, I guess the 7-inch first mm. from uh, Jay and Rich, and just yeah, being like, yeah. this is, band is fucking awesome. And it, the whole It felt way like through, we, we really figured out what we, like, what we should be doing you know yeah. like it was a great moment to be like all right this makes sense for mm -hmm. us and it feels like fresh and exciting to me but also sincere you know mm -hmm. in a way that like ultimate warriors wasn't insincere but it was also just playful you know it was just like little little boy behavior you mm -hmm. know like which is fine because i was a little boy but like <laughs> you know now it's like oh man i'm like 23 and i i've like developed a couple thoughts you know and we've like our tastes have branched out to a point where we could try something that isn't just overt uh a, a collection of our influences you know on paper for you to see you know mm -hmm. and i felt the aesthetic of the band was so unique and everything about it felt just so different than than what hardcore tends to wind up being a lot of times which is follow the leader or 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 try and have a shocking aesthetic or try like not not like a defined thing and i mean like visually too like the way those records looked was just so kind of different yeah yeah i think we we just had a lot of like new music that we were learning about and like suddenly we had like a new set of rules for ourselves and it felt great you know to like Oh, play slow. Also, we love Fu Manchu. So, like, we can, like, maybe have a moment that's kind of Fu Manchu-like. But we also love, um, you, you know, uh, Flipper for sure. We love uh, Boston Not L.A., like the slow songs, you know. We like mm -hmm. all that stuff really uh, kind of came together in a way that felt like no one else is really doing this, I don't think. You know, and then but also people liked it right away, which was like stunning, you know, like what a amazing feeling. I like look at that period and there was a wave of bands that just felt like complete students of of hardcore and like record nerds and, and deep head things where you wouldn't just be pulling from one source. You'd be pulling from all these disparate places and and uh there's just like such respect for the history of punk and hardcore yourselves and, and um, iron age and mind eraser. And there was like this sort of wave of just like, and no one sounded the same, but everyone yeah, had yeah. that same sort of reference points of like, Oh, these are all the best records of all time. I mean, for, it was really inspiring for us living in like around Allentown, um, and like in the suburbs there, because it, it felt like there was three bands that we were all like best friends and brothers. And we all sounded totally different because it was piss jeans coming from like the slow punk, you know, noisy punk sort of thing. And there was Pearls and Brass, 
who were just stoner rock, like, like, you know, really technically like uh driven, like just pure bluesy stoner rock and air conditioning who were like yeah, free form, like, you know, volcanic guitar noise, like more like indebted to like jet, like high rise or something. I'm like just free or like Harry pussy dead sea style. Like, and we all played shows together and it was so much fun because none of us felt like we sounded like each other, but we like loved each other's bands and all wanted to be better. You know, like it was really helpful to have that like camaraderie. I think like we toured early on with air conditioning. We toured with Pearls and Brass. Um, Pearls and Brass broke up because that was Randy's band and he just joined piss jeans then like yeah. in, in one fluid motion so we were it, like that was special to like have friends who were doing different things artistically that you also loved you know and we're like right there to witness the evolution of mm -hmm. i think there is these periods where there's like one sound that kind of defines a a time in hardcore but i think the the lack of one to, or punk but i think the lack of one defining sound of this era kind of speaks to what the era was was about which was just just kind of like complete love of it and a moment where you were able to link up with bands from different places and people were paying attention and i feel very lucky to have been through that because i don't know i think we kind of live in a post-critical sphere era now and that era we were in really benefited from having places writing about our bands or, or, or drawing people attention uh, to it from different places that might not know about it or might not, might not be tapped into MRR or something. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, well now it's like, you just have to have like, well, like social media drawing people in and like, I'm, I'm thankful that I'm not starting a band for the first time today. Cause that's just not my forte, you mm -hmm. know, like mm -hmm. I don't want to like perform in that way against my will you know i will like on my own terms but i love being able to photocopy a flyer or so you know or like make a song and, and have people hear it it's just i'm lucky that I, i'm like grandfathered in at this point with piss yeah. jeans you know like we're already reputable enough where like if we do a new record people will know for the most part who might be interested in it you know and then they can decide to check it out or not because i feel like that's the hardest thing is like having anyone know that you made a song now if mm -hmm. if you're not already established i think that's the one of the great struggles of this era for bands that built their thing on being earnest and not being characters and that's why why wrestling has taken off so much more now because it is so much about having a character and having a persona which is what social media is so right. you can talk into that I find it so fucking awkward trying to make videos for this podcast because I have to embody some weird thing. It's just not. And you get that immediate natural. feedback of like, oh, I was talking about horror movies and I got 50 likes, but then I talked about Rob Zombie and I got 75 <laughs> likes. So should I, maybe should I lean on the, you know what I mean? Like yeah. you're just second guessing yourself and like, yeah are you just like trying to spit back what you think people want, which of course like sucks, you know, yeah. like for any of us to be doing stuff that we just think we're answering what people want because of like the statistics that we're seeing, mm -hmm. that's when you're going to 
make something that sucks, you know? Uh, yeah. And it's also because <laughs> it's to get your thing in front of people. There's a game. There's like, it doesn't matter sure. what you produce now. And it, it may be, it will or will not be appreciated on its own merits. It's also like, can you get the people that potentially might like what you're doing to see it or to, yeah. to hear your song? That's, that's also like, I guess an art form. And there's people that that's their whole job is just figuring out the best time to post a video. So the most people yeah. will wind up seeing it. And it's just talking about taking the fun out of doing something. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's cool that some people are good at that. I, I, I just, it's not for me, you know, I'd also like, I, I'm also of that like stubborn age where it's like, yeah, I didn't post about that thing I did and no one knows about it, but I'm satisfied that I didn't post about it. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I still have that integrity, which mm -hmm. is kind of like silly because it's like, well, you should, you know, no one's holding it against you nowadays. If you post a thing explaining what you just released and like you posted a few times. So I'm yeah. getting more comfortable with it, but it still feels like an ill fit, you know? Yeah. And I think all these mediums have their own rules. Like you can make a video of you talking earnestly about your record and the work that you put into it and the thing that you did. And that might do well on, on Instagram, but that's not what the kids on TikTok or YouTube or right. whatever are necessarily looking for. So you'll have to do something slightly different for these things because they're more into this than that. And it just becomes, it becomes like chasing its tail and it, it, it takes away from the time that could be focused on making the thing or doing anything in the world. Yeah. But I admire the way like fucked up, just like keeps doing their thing and doesn't seem to be doing it in a negotiation with their fans or what, like, you know, they're, you guys clearly like can be found in certain ways on social media, but the band is kind of like not, not, not an explained. It's not coming to me. It's not begging me to like, like, so that you can send me a free ticket to a live video premiere, you know, like, I like that you only just like, here's a new record. Here's a new record, you know? And then like, you can listen and decide what you think, you know, like I appreciate that approach. Well, I thank you for that, but I think we are also maybe hindered by that approach. And this brings up something I oh, want. Oh, you to... are, yeah, for success, yeah. but also like I don't know. You called well, your band fucked up, man. We're talking piss jeans and fucked up. These are like terrible band names. You absolutely, know? and I'm as blessed as I am to have achieved anything, anything at all. There's also the fact that I signed that deal with the devil to where this became my job, and I've done everything to prevent it from being my job, like always tried to have other jobs going on because I find in moments like now where like, I'm, other than doing this podcast, that's I think probably why I doubled down on doing this podcast, but where, where the band is becoming the thing, it changes the way I think about doing it or it changes the yeah. way I listen to music in general. Like it just makes the relationship to the whole thing different when it's, your sole focus and you guys obviously have made a point of also keeping your your jobs and keeping like two lives yeah. going uh was there ever that temptation though to try and go pro core and to make this something that could potentially ruin your love I of music no like 
not really i was just always too scared and like also like scared not just of like failing but scared of like ruining it for myself you know like that if if i have to do piss jeans and be like ah we've got a hundred pre-sales in minnesota last time we had 125 you know like that's just like that that like strategic business minds like i don't ever want to have that mind like i have to have it for like work sometimes you know in various jobs i've had but like let me just let piss jeans be fun you know and it's like oh we've we sold a hundred tickets last time and and i find out we sold 20 this time this could be hilarious let's you know see you know like who cares if we get more popular or less popular let's just try to be thankful for like any of this whatsoever. I mean, the first time I put out a split seven inch, that was like a success. And the rest has been like a victory lap that I never would have wanted or expected, you know? So just trying to like have as much fun for as long as I can with it. That's like, that. I just love that about it. You know, that everything's a treat that when we come to whatever town, we don't come there very often. So it's special and like, Oh, this is exciting. And it's great to see you guys. You know, I'm not sick of you because I tour with you eight months a year. You know, I guess I'm afraid of that stuff. Like the band imploding from all the things that band people's bands implodes from when, when mm-hmm. they become more of a career. And it is this thing that is not real at the end of the day. It's not a career where, the work you put in is equal to what you're able to take out of it. And I know that's a very romanticized notion of work, but I know if I work harder on this podcast and make more of a point of posting it and spread the word, it will be more successful. And I probably should be doing that. But with the band that doesn't necessarily work, like yeah. people could be sick of your voice. People could be sick of the band. People could be. Yeah. Uh, I think both you and us are are facing the same reality right now where fucked and pissed are words that yeah. meta and these corporations don't like. It's terrible, how, yeah. How do you promote bands that at one point, these names were kind of, they worked in our favor a little bit, but now it's a detriment. Yeah. That's funny. And I, I feel like also we've never we've never broken up, which like we never gave people a chance to miss us. Mm-hmm. you know like so that's like a hindrance you know mm-hmm. we were easily like pissed jeans and fucked up up until this point you could take either of our bands for granted right yeah. like yeah. oh new record that's cool i used to like them i'll check in again some other time and that's fine you know like i'm glad we've never broken up it's always been fun you know but like strategically things are not poised for business success but I feel better about that because that's just like gross to me, you know? Yeah. There's a cynical thing and the band could implode, especially with fucked up. Cause it's just not, we yeah, don't get right? along. we're not, we're not like you guys that have been able to maintain that friendship. I think that times there's like some real vitriol towards each other in the band. I'm sure you guys also have that. Moments. Yeah. It's like family, you yeah. know, like you don't always get along with everyone for sure. But, but like you, and I say you, I mean us too. You just have to break up for it. You just have to tell people you're breaking up. Yeah, right. Go away for two years. And then it's like a massive cash cow when you come back. But that's so gross. Yeah, like, yeah. 
it just feels and i suppose that's the difference where you like kind of the only time i'm like not concerned about any of this stuff is when i'm like oh this isn't and this is putting grandiose terms on it but these are art projects that have existed over these many years and all of us are collaborating working on something and the metric for success is the fact that we're still producing stuff that we find interesting and that was that was like the mo that should always have been the motivation and it's just the the business side of things that winds up fucking that up and, and yeah uh, yeah if you can ignore yeah, that's it. what i'm and i mean like also you know we we could like i've made like incredible to me money playing shows that i never i mean i remember there was the ultimate warriors played a show at a college where we got 250 dollars, and i was like I'm officially rich. Like this is insane, you know? <laughs> and since then I've made more money, but like, I don't know. I'd probably be living like, like we're not a very popular band by any means. Like maybe I could work extremely hard, ruin this band for myself and <laughs> live a very poor existence, you know, scraping by like without health insurance, whatever. Oh, that doesn't sound appealing, you know? And I think from what I understand from talking to like really, really popular bands, it's, it's a lot more work in terms of the shittier side of this thing. Yeah. Like, I was talking to Chris Shiflett and I was like, do you think no use for a name could have gotten to where not necessarily where the Foo Fighters are, but could have gotten to that next stage. And he was just like, no, nah, we didn't have the work ethic. Like mm. it's a lot of fucking Damn. work. Yeah. I don't have, I don't have that work ethic. I don't have a no use for a name work ethic. <laughs> yeah, that's what fighters. I was thinking. I'm like, I'm screwed. I don't know if I have a no use for a name <laughs> work ethic. Which is fine. I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to work. I want like a fun ethic, you know, if I can find a way to do that, you know? I, I think any band that was willing to go through the warp tour is a harder band than I. Right. Ooh. Yeah. No, <laughs> like no appeal. If no, that's what no. it takes to be successful, I'm okay. <laughs> no, I, I would like, I, I will be successful if I like trip over it and fall backwards into it. That's like the only, and I, you know, like, and if that never happens, that's fine. You know, because yeah. this is having fun with your friends, you know, that's the most important thing. And then meeting your heroes too. Like, I think both of us have been yeah. fortunate enough that even if it is it, like Felix Von Havoc or the guy from Weston or, or then later on meeting these people that were in these legendary bands when we got into this stuff and having your heroes wind up being peers and just becoming part of that world. Like that's, that's all I want. Crazy. Yeah. It's fucking yeah. crazy. Like, like knowing these people and, and just being able to talk to them about like weird minutia on their records. It's like, that's the, <laughs> that's all I wanted as a kid. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's like, we've already succeeded on the important stuff, you know, hopefully we can just, uh, stay healthy, you know, and keep yeah. making stuff that's interesting to us. And, you know, that, that's the thing, like with me thinking about piss jeans now, I don't know. I mean, I feel like fucked up has gone through such dramatic evolutions through the years, but we kind of try to keep sounding like our first record, you know, our first song, but also not repeating it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, harder to find that territory you know where it's like we haven't evolved but we're not repeating ourselves it's a fun challenge but i think it's like the you look at the bands that have there's like two paths you can go out cold where every record's amazing but every record's like 
of the style or poison idea where you're trying to like you're saying evolve that sound where yeah yeah feel the darkness doesn't necessarily sound like pick your king but they're both fucking amazing and right right and, and you can tell that they the the stuff they added to their sound gave it a new dimension it didn't it, it's not like a i don't know how we rock or yeah because i mean like with all the, I, I love so much different music but like i we can't do like a cold wave piss jeans record you know like it just it would just be too awkward for us you know other bands can make those things work i don't know like we just kind of have our lane and it's like let's just really excavate this lane you know (laughs) like and see and i don't know but the thing is that's funny is that those limits are only opposed on us like why couldn't you do like a piss jeans ska record or yeah i don't know it would maybe feel disingenuous but then it's like but that's just because we've imposed it there's no other reason yeah i guess it's like the only, i'm also trying to like in a weird way like respect piss jeans the entity mm-hmm. because like i would like or just like st- I, I don't know like I, I know I can do piss jeans well like this. You know, I don't know that I could do those things. Although I will say like on this new one we've got coming out, it's definitely more like th- there's like a weird tinge of nineties pop punk to uh, quite a bit of it. You know, I, I, you guys do a bro him part on one of these songs. It's gonna I mean, be a we, we, <laughs> uh, it's definitely the bro himiest <laughs> Miss Jean's record for sure. That's awesome. That is yeah, amazing. no, I mean, and it's like it's fun because like that feels sincere and also like it could exist within Piss Jean's universe, but mm-hmm. also be a little unexpected and probably turn off some people while turning on others. You know, like mostly it's just like it excited us. You know, so it's like all right, this makes sense. Because and like I no think... one's do. I feel like no one's doing it. You mm-hmm. know, to me, like I don't know. I, I hope we don't like. I hope we don't sound like old guys wearing our teenage clothes, you know, like, but I don't think we do. I think, I think I, it sounds true. And I think it's like the Melvins doing a kiss record. Like these were, these were our kisses back then, or like, <laughs> like them doing a kiss cover or something. Yeah. These yeah. were, this was our kiss. Like these were our, our, oh, yeah, uh, I love that stuff. Yeah. Like this was the, uh, larger than life, California skate rock. And it's just like, being generous. I mean, like, I just also like, let's have these songs be like fun songs for people to enjoy, you know, mm-hmm. like that's a, th- that's a, that's a great goal, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> like rather than like, can you imagine if like the time signature, we switched to like some new rubric that like only we know, like, I guess maybe that's just cause I'm not like really a musician and that stuff appeals to me up to a very low point, you know, exactly. but like, I feel the same way. Like, I don't know. I'd rather just let's write songs that someone else will enjoy that. I will also sincerely enjoy like that. That's exciting. And it's a challenge, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that's the, uh, that's why ultimately to keep doing it is because it's still interesting to play with the form and to play with the parameters. Like you were saying, like art limited by parameters is yeah. is fascinating and the parameters that we've established for these bands and 
like we still have conversations like there's songs on our new record that we've cut because it's like oh, this doesn't sound like a fucked up song like it mm. doesn't work within these parameters we've established yeah, for yeah. ourselves and like like you're saying being true to the the band and being true to the the thing we've done up until this point yeah no it's it's a it's a fun thing to try and also like maybe the opposite of limitation is also like let's let's try to write a song like this knowing it will come out completely like <laughs> piss jeans will make it a piss jeans thing you know yeah. like because it's like okay we really like huh have we ever tried to sound like killing joke like have we ever tried to sound like uh power pop band the boyfriends like no let's just like see what happens you know because it's not going to come out like killing joke or the boyfriends it'll come out like this third thing you know like I was like, speaking of um, like heroes, I was talking to uh, Mark Arm of Mudhoney one time about like their songwriting process. And he was just like, we just try to rip stuff off that we like. And it just comes out sounding like Mudhoney, you know? And I'm like, ah, yeah. Like that's what I aim for, you know, is just to like, we run it through our machine, even if it is a ripoff of something and it just, no one can tell in the end, you know? It's amazing what it, in, like a tastemaker Steve was to kill by death yeah stuff back then like how many records he kind of uncovered and hit people to and put onto the market he he also inspires me because he's like sold records and like mm -hmm. lost like while still buying them they they're not like a, a psychic ball and chain to him mm -hmm. you know as like a certain collectors so I hope to one day uh, attain that level of uh, enlightenment, you know? Brad's like that, I find. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was able to uh, let it go. My my dad calls it a dealer mentality versus a collector mentality, where <laughs> you realize that these things just flow through your hands and you can get another one. But, yeah, I feel I feel that, that psychic ball and chain like you talked right. about. I need to shed that. Yeah, I, yeah. I need a meditation. Steve needs to start leading meditation classes for people. Yeah, no, he said, like, I think he, like, sold his first, like, you know, Jackie Shark 7-inch or something, and then was like, huh, I can just do this. And then it was lifted, the curse, you know? He could mm -hmm. just sell stuff. Especially now where some of these records, like you mentioned the Misfits collectors earlier, those records, some of those records are, like, 50, 000, like a down payment on a car. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. It just 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 disturbing to think about yeah and it's <laughs> uh I, I feel like it's like that with all collectibles now like video games and do you see steve aoki had his gorilla biscuits start today on purple graded and sealed away in one oh place? yeah no i mean i i feel like if we talk about this enough it will come to reality like i just I don't want to it's i don't want to like beetlejuice it into like becoming a thing you know because yeah, that stuff is that stuff is really dark. The like baseball cardification. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, no, I, and can't, I feel I can't. well, and that's like the way it's. That's the way I guess artifact collecting versus functional art form collecting is destined to go. Mm. I mean, just even like the, like the art world where it's like you know these billionaires just have like vaults where they keep it so that it can earn value and mm -hmm. sell it. It's all so gross, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. And this was meant to be like the the antidote to that, but it just shows you, I guess, how insidious capitalism yeah. is. Yeah, completely. <laughs> well, I don't want to end on a bleak note, but no. I've kept you <laughs> so long 
and this has been hey, awesome. what fun yeah uh, anytime you want to come back now that we've broken the seal and catch up on or off the air you are always welcome hey what a pleasure damien thank you so much for having me thank you matt for coming on the show and you're over there matt will be back for part two actually i'm already kind of working on something um but we'll, we'll talk about that when it actually happens but matt will be back for a part two at some point in the future because that was awesome check out half divorced in stores and, and online now and that is that coming up on the next episode of turned out a punk from the the legendary band magnetic fields claudia and steven will be here and if you listen to this podcast and you're like man god it's just people talking about how much they love punk and all this kind of crap listen to next week's episode it's a feisty one. <laughs> oh man uh, it's good it's really good but it is feisty so uh check that out and that is that for today's show remember as always black lives matter the lives and issues of indigenous peoples all over the world matter we need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights and stop hate and violence towards people of different faiths different races different identities different religious beliefs because we're not talking about politics here this is like human rights shit people deserve to be able to live free from hate and violence and discrimination ceasefires aren't political that's human rights so if there's organizations in your community that are affecting positive change, get involved. See if you can get involved. I'm sure, they, I'm sure you can get involved. Lend your time, lend your money. Uh, protecting re- people's reproductive rights is, is also, I'm sure in places in this world, it's, it's a constant fight. But where I'm at in Canada, this thing is becoming a battle again as well. So make sure people have the right to choose what they want to do with their reproductive systems. And, uh, Speaking of positive change, sign your organ donor cards because you can kind of make a positive change for someone as you're going out. And I've seen it perform miracles. I have with my my own eyes, like not literally in the room, but I've definitely seen the aftermath of the miracles that can come from organ transplant and organ donation. Try meditating. I didn't believe in it. And I really, I'm better believe I'm going to be doing it tonight. Today has been a really rough day. Holy crap. Uh, and, uh, oh yeah, anyone can do this shit. Start a band. Actually, (laughs) don't. Don't start a band. It'll ruin your fucking life. Don't start a fucking band. But there's lots of other things you can do to help punk. Or hardcore. Or whatever you want to help. All right. I can't, I can't fake it tonight. Thank you everyone for listening. See you on the next episode.